We are going to jump into Revelation now. We are finishing up chapter 2 this morning. So Revelation is ultimately about the gospel. Through and through, this is a book that will get us to Jesus relentlessly. If we don't find ourselves seeing Jesus in more pronounced ways and being confronted with who he is, then we are missing the whole point of the book of Revelation. The first few chapters, uh, they are setting things up for the rest of the book. And I think the rest of the book is what many people are actually anticipating and looking forward to. But in order to understand the rest of the book, we have to first understand the importance of us getting our foundation laid properly here in these early chapters. So we must have a clear understanding of who Jesus is, what he has set about to accomplish, in this world. And if we don't get things set in a proper context, if we're not seeing Jesus in the way that he intends for us to see him, the rest of the book is going to be really difficult to understand. So let's seek to see Jesus as he desires so we can understand more later. Delayed gratification, which is not a a thing in America at all, right? But uh, that's how this book works. All right, so Revelation 2, we are going to, uh, let's read these verses, and then we'll work through them. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these words. As we read through these, many of us are probably like, what in the world is going on there? So would you help us this morning to have clarity, to have understanding, but not just understanding? Will you take the truths that are contained in these in this letter and would you apply them onto our hearts would you change us shape us transform us make us into who you want us to be 
in these few moments that we have together this morning. God, thank you for your grace, which is found and experienced and seen in so many different ways. We thank you for this opportunity that we can gather together here in person again. Pray that we would see it for the gift that it is and uh, take full advantage of it as we can. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so this letter to Thyatira is the fourth of seven letters, which means it is the middle letter or, or the central letter of the seven letters. It is also the longest letter of the seven. Interestingly, though, it is written to the most insignificant city and to the most insignificant church of the seven. So this can be a reminder for many people, but you think especially like small churches, so center church would fall into that. This is a reminder to small churches, to churches who might feel they are insignificant, that they are just as vital to Jesus' work in this world. Small churches are not inferior to mega churches. So oftentimes people will think, well, it's the person with the blog, the person with an international voice, uh, maybe the church that's got smoke or fog going on on Sunday morning. Those are the churches that really matter. But Jesus, what we see here is he's writing this letter through John, but also what we saw earlier, that Jesus walks amongst all of the churches all of them, including the small and the seemingly insignificant. Now, the description of Jesus that we get at the beginning of this letter comes largely from Revelation 1. Jesus is described, first of all, here as the Son of God. And what Jesus is doing is he's setting himself up and against the false gods of Thyatira. Now, Thyatira was a blue-collar town that was known for its production of metals and of fabrics. So trades, the trades that, that would have been uh, pervasive within Thyatira, they were oftentimes dedicated to a certain god or a goddess. So the production of a certain material or, or metal, it, it usually was very closely tied to the worship of a certain false god. Jesus then, he describes himself as having eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, as he's describing himself in this way, he's speaking in a way that's meaningful to those who reside in Thyatira. Historical context would tell us that Thyatira possessed a specialized process for making a prized form of bronze which then would obviously utilize fire to warm it and then to shape it in the ways that it needs to be shaped. And now in contrast to false gods that needed to be constructed, Jesus is demonstrating his superiority through his description here. He is already what the bronze workers are trying to create. Whether that was an image or wealth or significance, Jesus then is what humanity longs for what we seek to create, what we try to create so often. Jesus is already that. And so Jesus is communicating to the reader. Jesus is, he is what we need. He is ultimately what we yearn for. And then in verse nine, this is just a really gratifying verse, especially if you're the one being spoken about. 
here. What, this is a great affirmation for the church in Thyatira. They are full of love. They have faith in Jesus. They are servants. They are patiently enduring through the trials of life. And not only that, but their faith, their love, their service, and their patient endurance. When John was writing this letter, it is exceeding what it was when they first trusted in Jesus. So what's being communicated is they have grown in their faith. There is tangible evidence of maturity in their lives. And Jesus is saying this matters. Even in this insignificant small church that is unknown to many, it matters. They, they may not be in the limelight in any way, but they are seen by Jesus. And he is acknowledging their faith in the gospel and the effects of their faith in the gospel. Now, some of you have chosen to be part of Center Church because you wanted a smaller church context. May, may we never ever buy into the foolishness that size determines importance. And that's coming from the tallest guy in the church, okay? Size does not determine importance. What we're engaged in here at Center Church has life and death implications for us and for those who are connected to us. Jesus sees us. He is with us. He wants to demonstrate his greatness to the corners of the world that you and I inhabit. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. Love and service and faith, these are not good works performed so that we might be saved. This is... These are things that God has designed for us to walk in. He has prepared these things for us to walk in beforehand so that others would see and know and encounter the gospel through us. So then, to not love, or when we are not loving, to not serve, to not patiently endure is to live in defiance of what Jesus has prepared us for. Okay, so Jesus affirms this church, but Jesus does have something against the church in Thyatira. It says that they are not discerning. So this church has the opposite problem of the church in Ephesus, who were commended for their discernment, but they lacked love. Now, this church in Thyatira is being commended for their love, but they are not discerning. Now, we get this mention of a woman named Jezebel, who is clearly not spoken of in a positive light at all. Now, the story of a woman named Jezebel is found in the Old Testament in 1 Kings, I believe, uh, in, in chapter 16. But Jezebel in the Old Testament, she is a daughter of a king who was not from Israel. Yet, Jezebel married a king, his name was King Ahab, who was a king of Israel. Okay? This was a big no-no in that time and according to God's design. 
this marriage then had disastrous implications for Israel. Jezebel was crucial in instituting the worship of false gods in Israel. Now here was the tricky part regarding Jezebel. She was not an Israelite. She was not one of God's chosen people, but she looked like one. She looked like one. She was among the people of Israel. She was married to the king. She played a vital and influential role in the life of Israel. Now, when Jezebel is being spoken of here in Revelation, this is not a reference to a specific individual like the one in the Old Testament. What's being talked about here, this is a teaching, or it's teaching about something that is in the spirit of what we see Jezebel doing in the Old Testament. So it's not a specific individual. This refers to something happening in the spirit of what happened previously in the Bible. And, and this is how the Bible is written. There are patterns, recurring patterns that happen throughout the Bible. So what's happening then in the church of Thyatira is there are people who are like Jezebel. They look like Christians and are part of the church and they talk like Christians, but they are in fact teaching and practicing idolatry and seducing people to engage in things that are against the gospel or not what God fully intends for his people. So, so what does that mean? What did that mean in, th in the church in Thyatira? What might that mean for us today? Here's a few examples of how this may have looked for them as well as how it can look for us today. First of all, syncretism. So syncretism is basically just a fancy word that means the merging of other ideas or beliefs or preferences into the gospel. Okay, so you take some Jesus, and then you combine into Jesus whatever else you might want to include, even if it's against Jesus, anti-gospel. So it flies with the cultural maxim, uh, the idea you can have it all, all right? Little Jesus, little whatever else you might want in your life. So for us, it may be marrying somebody but also then exploring other forms of sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. Or it could be thinking that God has no bounds in his desire for you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. So when he says die to yourself, he only means that a little bit. That in other ways, he just wants you to pursue your dreams, pursue whatever will make you happy. Or it could be believing that a little bit of sin won't hurt you. And the justification then is we think, well, I'm excelling in this area of faith or this area of my spirituality, so I'm just going to be lax in this other area. I've put the work in here, so now I get to take a break here. Or it could be taking saved by grace, not works, to an unbiblical extent, thinking that it doesn't matter what you do because there is grace to cover any sin that you want to engage in. There are many justifications that we will create, that we will tell ourselves 
so that we can satisfy our sinful flesh. This is what's going on in the church in Thyatira. In my 13 years as a parent, I have had literally thousands of interactions with my children that illustrate what's going on in the church in Thyatira. So child A will be playing something or playing with something. Child B will come, will join in in whatever is happening, or they might just outright take the toy or the possession that's being played with. Then child A will speak harshly to child B. In that moment, child A believes that they are in the right, that they have done nothing wrong. They have only been wronged themselves. So they lash out at child B. Now, as a parent, I usually become aware of what's going on once the volume is raised and the harsh language is used. So I oftentimes will address that first. But the child who is speaking harshly almost always, without fail, will reply to me, but, and then they're going to explain why they are justified in lashing out at their sibling. In that moment, child A has conveniently overlooked the many times that they have been unkind to someone else, that they have been the one who is taking the toy or taking over in a given situation. They're overlooking the fact that they have been shown patience many times themselves. This happens all the time in parenting, but this is not just a child's issue at all. This is an adult's issue as well. We as adults will justify our anger when we're driving. Right? How, how could this person cut me off? How stupid are they? Don't they know that I own the left lane? Right? And we will justify the anger that we have towards someone else. We will justify our anger when we have to wait, when we don't want to, eat, we, or want to wait. We will justify our anger when we are coaching second grade kids in a game. We will justify our eating. We will justify our entertainment. At the end of a long day, we will say, I have worked hard, I am tired, I deserve to indulge myself in fill in the blank, whatever that looks like for you. So the danger in Thyatira is that of double-mindedness. And that is the idea that someone lives two lives simultaneously. And it's the same danger all of us face every day as well. In the New Testament book of James, James chapter 1, it speaks of a double-minded man. So someone who would place faith in Jesus while entertaining doubts about Jesus. Now, don't hear me say that all doubts are evil or wrong. Doubts can be a really good thing to drive us deeper in our faith, to cause us to seek out Jesus in great, greater ways. But in Thyatira, doubt is being expressed in the idol of sexual immorality, okay? So people would say, I believe 
in Jesus, but I'm also going to believe that this thing added on to Jesus will provide me the satisfaction that I want and that I need. So there's a belief in Jesus, but also then a belief in something other than Jesus. And so Jesus is seeking to be really explicit here in this letter to Thyatira, but then also this letter to us today as well. And this can be captured really well uh, by an individual named John Owen. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, but in it he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We don't just say, look at sin and think, oh, I should not be doing that. The idea that we need to have towards sin is it needs to die. It needs to be killed. So whenever we feel like maybe we're having some spiritual success in some area of our lives, there will oftentimes be a whisper in our ears that says, you can take it easy in this other way. And that should never be the case towards sin. We should never view sin with lenience. The reality is, it's another quote I came across this week. Sin can always come up with excuses to do what it wants, to do what is convenient and comfortable. This is true for all of us. This is how Satan works in each one of us. It looks differently for all of us. It strikes us in different ways. But Satan is working to convince us that whatever we view as convenient and comfortable, that it's okay to pursue that sin. And Jesus is saying really clearly here, don't do it. That sin will destroy you. It will eat you alive. So don't view any sin as not a big deal. All sin is a big deal. Now, here in verse 21, Jesus is illustrating his patience. Because what we don't see Jesus doing is you sin one time and he just like burns you to a crisp. You're done. He's unbelievably patient. We read here, he gave time to repent. So the fact that today we're sitting here, you're sitting there at home. Right now, we have the opportunity, opportunity to begin the lifelong process of turning away from sin. And in so doing, beginning to starve sin in our own lives and hearts so that it will eventually die. Don't refuse the opportunity you're being given today. Jesus is beckoning us to turn from sin, to turn towards him. Because if we don't do this, to not do so will lead to death. Anguish and tribulation awaits those who reject Jesus by continually choosing sin itself. So in this moment of patience that God extends to you, utilize it to run away from sin. All right, verse 24 then, it references the deep things of Satan. One, one thing that I really love about the gospel is its simplicity. In many ways, the gospel is, it is simple. It not, there's many ways that it's not as well. But for many people, 
the gospel seems too simple for them. And if you think culturally, simplicity is oftentimes demeaned or looked down upon, except for maybe some of those little corners of simple living, you know, go off grid and, and do that. And those are the YouTube shows that I like watching, so I can appreciate that. But, but this is one of Satan's lies, th this idea, the deep things of Satan. What, what you'll find, and, and this is probably true in your lives as well, is that there's kind of this, uh, this reality, this whisper that you'll hear of Satan saying, I have something more for you. The idea being that don't be satisfied with what you have, be satisfied with just a little bit more. So I was thinking about this this week. It reminded me of what happened in the Garden of Eden. This is how Satan preyed on Adam and Eve. If you eat this piece of fruit, you will have knowledge, more knowledge than you have right now. Your eyes will be opened. This is what Satan does. But the reality is, Satan's a master at making promises, but then never fulfilling them in a real meaningful sense. He might give us just a little bit, but he won't ultimately carry out the promise, fulfill the promise. So when, when Satan makes offers to us, ultimately the offer is going to come with burdens. He, he's going to try and weigh us down eventually. And there's such a rich expression here in this letter to the Thyatirans, a rich expression of the gospel in verse 24 where Jesus says, I do not lay on you any other burden. If Jesus is what we have, that's all we need. We're called to hold fast in him. Jesus does not lay on us any other burden. And this is in strong contrast to what Satan seeks to do to us. Now, our capacity to conquer, as it talks about here at the end of the letter, our capacity to conquer is completely wrapped up in what Jesus has done for us, not in what we do ourselves. So it says, the one who conquers, who keeps my works. So the burden's being put on Jesus. He's the one who's doing the work. So what do we need to do? We look at Jesus. We rest in him. We live in the fact that he has loved us perfectly and offers us all that we need and all that we want. And then in this, Jesus includes a promise of authority over the nations. So to the downtrodden, to Thyatira, the insignificant small church, authority over the nations means something. If, if that's to be spoken to rich people, to wealthy people, to powerful people, that they would think, who cares? I, I am already possessing authority. Look at me. Look at where I stand, how I look down on other people. That word means nothing to the rich and the powerful, but to the downtrodden, the promise of authority over nations means something significant. Now, at the end of this letter, Jesus makes clear again that he's going to give himself to those who conquer, not give merely stuff, but himself. He says in verse 28, 
and I will give him the morning star. Now, for many of us, we might think, what in the world is that? And Revelation is really helpful for us in this regard. At the end of Revelation, 20, chapter 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, am the bright morning star. So what Jesus is saying here, as he's saying he's going to give himself to us, is that all of our longings spring from Jesus ultimately. So my desire for a really good meal is actually an indicator that I long for Jesus, who is the bread that came down from heaven. My enjoyment of, your enjoyment of, and investment in any created thing is actually a reminder that our satisfaction is not found in more and more created things, but in the one who created them, who created us, Jesus. So the letter to Thyatira then is a call towards Jesus, but, but it's a call away from sin and Satan and death, a call away from making good things into God things. And a call then towards Jesus. But here's the real danger for us today. To read a letter like this, to hear the damning warnings being given by Jesus, and then to go on with life as though we never heard what is contained in this letter. We cannot go on without stopping to reflect on, to wrestle with, Jesus call here. So a few questions for us just to stop and to wrestle with this. In your own life, how do you make allowance for sin? What does that look like for you? In what ways do you know that you're sinning, but you're making provision for your sin? You're acting as if you are not sinning. How are you doing that? What is your greatest sin struggle? What immediately comes to mind when you think of your greatest sin struggle? For us to be made aware of sin in our lives, to not confess that to someone and then seek to kill it, is essentially us being ambivalent about our sin. It's us not caring about our sin. And in that, we are inviting what this letter says is great tribulation into our lives. We're inviting God's wrath upon ourselves. Or, or we can push this from a community perspective. When was the last time you asked someone to assess your life, to speak into your life? to observe what's going on in your life and try to address some of what's going on in your heart. This is why Jesus gave the church the church so that we can help kill sin together, to have these hard conversations with one another. So I want to run this then into our gospel application because I I believe that our tendency is to think about confessing sin and killing sin as being a burden for us. When the pastor 
or someone else asks you to confess sin with someone else, you think, oh man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there at all. So we need to understand when this letter is clearly calling us to do that, to kill sin, to use the resources and tools that God's given us to kill sin, that for us to not do it in the way God designs is harmful for us, but also to understand as he's calling us to this, there's this great gospel promise in this for us. Jesus does not lay burdens on us. He takes them upon himself. So when he calls us to confess our sin, to kill sin, he is not trying to lay burdens upon you. The call to confess your sin and to turn away from idols is for your joy. This is what leads you to freedom. I know when we think about confessing our sin to someone else, that seems like slavery for many of us. But this is God's design for us to get to freedom. That is not slavery. We are already enslaved. The way out, confessing sin, killing sin, that is where freedom is found. So, when we think of confessing sin, and you are filled with shame or embarrassment or concern of what others might think of you, I would contend, if that's what you feel, if that's where, you at, where you're at, that you probably don't understand the gospel to the extent God desires for you to understand the gospel. You don't probably understand the shame that Jesus took upon himself. How Jesus took your shame upon himself. You probably don't understand how Jesus took your burdens upon himself. You probably don't understand how horrible your sin is and how good of a gift Jesus offers to you with forgiveness and grace. Jesus wants to free us. And the way to freedom is by confessing and killing sin and doing that with Jesus' church. So I want to close with John 8.36. Just a reminder of what Jesus says about freedom. We began this letter to Thyatira, Jesus revealing himself as the Son of God. And here we read, if the Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. There is no other activity we can run to that will give us true freedom. There's no other person that we can go to that will give us freedom as Jesus intends for us. There is no activity, no hobby, no vacation that we can chase after that will give us freedom that we're looking for. Only Jesus. So run to him, look to him, and trust in him.